Ephesians chapter 4, I'd like to carry on in the series, and I was just so delighted to hear the contributions this morning in terms of the the ministry, because what I want to speak to you about this morning is God's grace gifts to the church, and uh, God gives gifts to the church. He gives gifts of men. He gives um, His Holy Spirit, and we're going to look over the next couple of weeks at the subject, but uh, I want to make a start this morning, and there's no way, obviously, you can cover everything, but we're going to just try and go start in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to go through, and uh, I trust that God will speak to you this morning and encourage you deeply. So, Father, I want to thank you for your word, and I thank you your word always produces fruit in our lives. I pray you'd help me this morning, Lord. I, I feel an excitement in my spirit to share these things this morning, but help me to make it clear, help me to make it understandable that truly your church can be built. And I want to trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and uh, I don't know what version you have in front of you, but uh, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read the first couple of verses. Paul writing, as we know, and he says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this is, a, an, a, this is a major turning point in this letter. If you've been listening to the messages over the last while, the first three chapters of Ephesians are amazing, big brushstrokes of doctrine and the, the greatness of our salvation and who God has called us to be and how we were predestined before time to walk with Him. And He's called us and He's saved us and He's, he's ripped us out of a godless future, and he's plunged us into his eternal stream of life. And uh, the mystery of the church, that somehow the Gentiles were made part of the new Israel. And uh, Paul has been writing and encouraging and saying, these are the big themes, these are the, the amazing bloodstream that you have in Christ. And it's incredibly exciting. And then he prays for the church, and he says in Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to be strengthened in your inner man by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that you might know the full measure of God's grace in your life. And he says, I want you to be strengthened in your inner man. And there's the apostolic heart to see Christ formed in people. And now he comes and he changes. And it's a major turning point because now he says, actually, if this, this grace has transformed you from the inside, then live a life worthy of your calling. He's kind of making it a little bit more personal now. The tone of the letter is changing, and he's, he's praying for them. That the, He's asking that that power that they experience would become real in the way that they live, that they would live a godly life. And so I can't uh, really do justice to all of this chapter this morning, but I'm going to do my best. And the first thing that Paul says, he calls the church to Christian unity. He calls the church to unity. And how does he do that? He says this in the first verse, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling that you have received. And he, he focuses on the calling that we have as Christians. And the calling of God is simply that from his words which, which brings us to salvation. It brings us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. And so Paul uses that word and said, all of you have been called. Now live worthy of your calling. By the power of the Spirit, but live in a worthy manner that honors the calling that you've received. That responds to the fact that you once were a child of the devil, and now you're a child of light. Live worthy lives. Live appropriately by the power of the Spirit within you. None of us can save ourselves. Becoming a Christian is not just a matter of making up your mind and saying, I choose to reform myself, and I'm going to live better from now on. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that God initiates everything. While you were dead in your sin, while you were dead in your nastiness, while I was dead in my twistedness, Jesus loved me. And he saved me. And he said, I choose you to be my friend. And I want relationship with you. And from now on, you and I are friends. You once were my enemy, 
Now you're my friend. You are my son and you're my servant. Isn't that glory? That is the gospel of Jesus. It is amazing. And John says this, the gospel of John, verse, uh, verse six, chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the powerful thing that we looked at last week. It's not only a wonder that we can know God, but the wonder is that actually God wants to know us. That God opens his heart to us and says, I choose to open myself to you. I make myself vulnerable that you can know me, the God of eternity, that you can know me. I choose to walk with you. I choose to be your friend. I said last week, people are complicated to get to know, aren't they? It's simple when you want to learn a language, you're just going to learn a language. But when you've got to get to know somebody, it's complicated because people hide things and they don't always open their hearts and there are little parts of their hearts that are not open. And there are some relationships that I have that I have to say after years, I don't really know the person. And there are some people that I, I know for a short while and I feel like I know them from the inside out because they've opened their heart to me and my heart is open to them. This is the mystery of relationship. And it's sometimes the chemistry is there with someone, sometimes, with someone, sometimes the chemistry is not there with someone. This is just life. But we can choose to open our hearts to each other. That's what the church is about. That's why the church is a messy place. <laughs> because people's hearts are up and down and inside out and sometimes good and sometimes bad. And this is life. But God takes messed up people and transforms them to sons and daughters. Isn't that the good news? Today I've been married for 18 years. 18 years. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We went away on Friday night up to... Uh, the Cotswolds, we love the Cotswolds, and we were just sitting playing drafts uh, in front of the fire, and I won every, every game, of course, but anyway. <laughs> we were just trying to say three things that we love about each other, we like about each other. And it, was, it turned into a little bit of a humorous thing because H Helen said, um, well, I said of Helen, you, you, you have been, been very patient, and I love that about you, and you've been long-suffering. And of course, then she turned that around and made a joke of it, that she has been very patient with me. So wonderful. But uh, when you get to know someone in marriage, it's a mystery, isn't it? Because you can't control some things. It's like, and as the person gets to know you better, there's all this opportunity for them to hurt you more, actually, because you've opened your heart. And I want to say that for me, there's a mystery in the church, and I want to encourage you never to close your heart to people. I read a quote this week from a guy called Herbert, and he said this, those who refuse to forgive others burn the very bridge that they, must, they themselves must cross. We can't afford to hold anything in our hearts against anybody, in a marriage, in our friendships, in relationships, whatever. And I want to encourage you for this new year, I'm getting completely distracted now, but I want to encourage you for this new year to keep your heart open to God and to the people in this community, even when you get hurt. Amen? Okay. So, Paul encourages the church and he says, God's brought you into the kingdom. It's an act of grace. God rules in your life now by grace. By grace, not by law, by grace. And he says, show it in how you live. Show yourself and show others that this transformation from the inside is genuine and radical by the way that you live. What you valued before is not what you're going to value anymore. And uh, for me, it's, it's very important that the first three chapters, that we are rooted completely in those first three chapters before we start talking about how we should live. Because if you're not rooted in the first three chapters, then when you talk about how you should live, you can get into kind of legalism. You can get into, I've got to do this to earn my salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Your salvation has been bought for you by the blood of Jesus. That is settled. Now you live according to the Spirit as you walk with Him. Amen? So he starts by talking about Christian unity. And what he addresses most of all is our attitudes. <laughs> I wish he didn't, but he did. He addresses our attitude and he says, be humble. He says, the essential thing is humility. To keep unity in the church, we need humility. And he says some other things. He says, be gentle, be patient. And most of all, love 
is displayed when we are patient and gentle. And, and I have to say, it's been hard for me to prepare this week because I look at my own life and I say, I don't always see gentleness and humility. I see harshness sometimes. I see pride. And yet God is changing me. And so even though I feel those things, I don't feel that's a disqualification. You don't have to be perfect to preach the gospel. God uses all of us broken, twisted vessels. He uses all of us to bring his kingdom. And that is, that is the joy of my heart this morning as I preach, that God is transforming all of us. And Paul says, says make sure that you keep the bond of peace in the community. Keep a bond of peace. Well, what is peace? Peace is a state of reconciliation. As much as is possible with you, be reconciled to each other. As much as is possible with you. It doesn't mean it always happens. But as much as is possible with you, be reconciled with each other. Do everything that you can to keep your heart open. Amen. You see, the emphasis that Paul brings here is that we are not required to create unity. We are required to keep unity. Jesus has created unity already that we are required to keep as Christians. And Paul takes seven little things in the next couple of verses and he makes it plain for all of us. And it's very simple. He says these are the things. In fact, uh, I was reading Michael, Eaton, Michael Eaton's commentary and he says this, all of these things that create and absolutely guarantee the unity of the church. These, these seven things I'm about to, to mention. And he says very simply, the first thing he says is that there's one body. One body. You might say to me, well, oh, aunt, I look at the church and it's so disunified. There are the Catholics who hold to particular theology. There's the Charismatics. They're the Reformed. They're the Baptists. They're the these. They're the Pentecostals. How can you say the church is one? Well, Paul says, and the whole mystery of the first three chapters is that the Gentiles who were completely separated from God, have now been made part of this amazing thing called the church. And he says, there's one body. What does he mean? There's not one church for Jews. There's not one church for Gentiles. There's not one church for the rich and another for the poor. There's not one church for Caucasian people and another church for Asian people or black people. There is one body for all. First fact of Christian unity. All right? Second, he says, there's one spirit. The church is birthed through the same spirit. There's not a different spirit that births different church. There's one spirit that is birthed the church into which we all belong. Second fact of Christian unity. That happens as people get saved. You can only become a member of God's church if you are saved. This is the scandal of the gospel that there's one way to salvation through Jesus Christ. You are not born by osmosis. You don't just somehow you get born as a baby and you just sort of grow up and then you are a Christian. No, you, you, you only become a Christian the moment that God brings you to, the kindness of God brings you to repentance. You recognize your need of Him and you say, God, I need you. That moment you're saved, you became part of the church. The worldwide church of God. Amen? It's the only way you can be part of the church. The only way you can be part of this church is if you are saved. That's what membership really is, isn't it? I mean, you can like the vision and like whatever happens here, but you become part of the church when you're saved. Is that clear? Amen. And Paul says that, and he says this, that's because we all have one calling. That's what he says. He says, we've all got the same calling. Therefore, we've all got the same future. And we've all got the same hope. Every single one of us has the same hope. Our hope is in Christ. It's not different hopes for different people. Our hope is in Jesus. That's it. Our hope is in Jesus. And he says, there's one Lord. Point four. All Christians have faith in one Lord. Jesus. That's it. Our hope is in Jesus. In nothing else. And then he says, fifthly, one faith. Well, I've pondered about that. Well, what does he mean, one faith? It can only possibly mean the faith of saving faith. It cannot mean faith in doctrine. Because doctrine has separated the church for generations. It has. 
for centuries. People have fought about doctrine. It cannot be ecclesiology, how the church organizes itself. That has only brought disunity in the, into the church. Only. Presbyterians say you must do it this way. Charismatics say you must do it this way. Baptists say you must do it this way. The Roman Catholic Church says you need a pope and bishops. And they say that's called Episcopal, the Episcopal, Episcopal model. There are all these models of how you do church. They've never, ever brought unity. The only thing that brings unity is Jesus. That's what we are unified under, that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. Nothing else. That's what brings us together. That's the faith that brings us together. And he says there's one baptism. What does he mean by that? He cannot be talking about how we baptize people. Again, centuries have separated people around the issue of baptism. How do we do it? Do we sprinkle people? Do we baptize by full immersion? Do we do it for children? Is it only adults? People have been killed because of what they believe about baptism, if you read church history. That's a fact. He cannot be talking about water baptism. What he's talking about is that we are all baptized into the church by the same Spirit. That is it. That's what unifies us. Every single one of us is baptized by the Holy Spirit into His church. Jesus' church. Man, I get excited about that. And now I'm talking very loudly. I'm sorry. And these things create unity. This is what creates unity in the church of Christ. And he finishes off and he says, there's one Father. For all Christians, we have the same Father. There's one Father over all. He's part of the Christian church, and that's why Paul uses that wonderful phrase. He says, he is through all, and he is in all. Amen. And so what does Paul say? He says, I'm asking you to guard the unity that Christ has given you. I'm asking you to fight for the unity that Christ has given you. Let nothing damage the unity that Christ has given you. And I have to say, when I look at my own life, my own ministry, I haven't always done that. I fought with other church leaders about things. And, but you know what? God changes and shows us more, and we just respond. And I'm sorry for the things that I've done that have not promoted unity in the church, but you know what? God is still God, and he's still got a plan for a church, his church. Ah, it's exciting. So what does Paul do then? He's, he's, it's the second thing that he emphasizes. He talks about this amazing unity that we have in Christ. And then he starts talking about the diversity that we enjoy in the body. So he addresses both things. And he says, but grace was given to each of you. Each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 8 he says this, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And I've always skipped over those verses because I've just found them confusing. What on earth is going on there? And then I was reading and preparing this week, and I found a commentary that really helped me. I'm so excited to share this. Psalm 68. Oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. The point that Paul is making is this. He's saying all of us are different. None of us is identical to the next person. We don't all have equal gifts. We are not all the same. We are called to be ourselves. We are called to enjoy ourselves without copying anybody else. You might have a particular hero, spiritual hero or mentor. God says to you and God says to me, don't become like them. Become like you. Become like I've made you to be. The gifts that I've given you, I want you to enjoy those and live in the fullness of those. And so we can enjoy amazing unity in the body of Christ. And at the same time, we can enjoy the diversity of the body. We can rejoice that we are not all like each other. How boring would that be? Pretty boring. Absolutely. And can you then go with me to Psalm 68? Because this, for me, was just like such a wonderful thing that uh, I saw as I was reading this commentary. And you know the psalm well. It says, Let God arise. And his enemies be scattered. 
And those you hate shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They will be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Isn't this beautiful, eh? And this verse we've, adopted, we've uh, used many times in this church. And God puts the lonely in families. Amen? And he leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. It's a beautiful psalm. It's actually talking about the life of David, but it's a psalm of procession. It's a, it's a triumphal procession. It's like if you've seen that movie Gladiator, right? It's one of my all-time favorite movies, right? And when, when he comes back, when, um, what is his name? No, the, the evil emperor. Whatever. He hasn't even won the battle, right? But he parades in a, in a procession. That's what they used to do. They would par- parade in procession and all the conquered enemies, kings, would go before them and they would parade them as they marched into the capital. That's the image here. It's exactly what, 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 what the psalmist is saying. God is marching. God is on this triumphal procession from Sinai to the promised land, to Cana, actually from there to Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And that's, he's on this triumphal procession. And the word says, as he marches through the desert towards Jerusalem, his enemies are scattered before him. Beautiful. And then it says in verse 17, it says, the chariots of God are thousands upon thousands. Doesn't it excite you? Okay. And then in verse 18, we read that he's, uh, that he's ascended to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, and he, it says he's led before him a procession of captured enemies. And it says that he's received gifts of people that once were rebels. Isn't that amazing? The image is this. Well, then, um, we go, go back to the Ephesian passage. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts amongst men, even among the rebellious, so that the Lord might dwell there. It's amazing. Paul is using Psalm 68 on purpose. He's using it very purposefully because Psalm 68 talks about the procession of God. It talks about God making people captive so that he can dwell with them. And now Paul is using that image to say, this is what Jesus has done for you. Same thing. You were once dead. You were once rebels. You were once prisoners. And God has come in His mercy and He's taken you captive. And you are now captive to Him. And now He gives you, the ones, ones who were once rebels, He gives you back to the church as a gift. That is amazing. He's saying you were a rebel. You were rotten. I touched you. I transformed you. And you know what I do now? I give you back to the church as a gift that you can bless the church. Man, that is incredible. He says God takes hold of dead people that are twisted and nasty. He saves them. He makes them part of his church. And then he says, I give you back to the church to be a blessing. It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And what gives that away is that in the Psalm 68, it says, you received gifts from men, but if you read the Ephesian passage, he, he changes the words, and it says, you gave gifts of men. So Paul is taking it, he's using it as an exposition, as he's applying it in the light of what Jesus has done, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church, and he says, because of what Christ has done, you who once were rebels are now a gift to the church. It is incredible. It is absolutely amazing. It is worth applauding. It is. So what is the point? You're not the same as the next person. You're not the same as the person sitting next to you. My, 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 my encouragement to you this morning is do we enjoy the unity of the church and at the same time, do we enjoy the diversity of the church? Are you longing to be like somebody else except rather long to be yourself? 
enjoy who you are. Amen. I mean, this is good news. You don't have to be like anybody else. And then Paul adds a little bit more in verse 9 and 10. He says this, In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. I've always found that confusing. Well, I looked at what Michael Eaton said, and he helped me. This is what he says. What does Paul mean? Well, the the New English Bible translates that verse like this, that it simply refers to Jesus coming to the earth as a man. He descended to the earth. Okay? John Calvin, the reformer, he thought it applied to Christ's suffering on the cross. He said when Paul was speaking about that verse, he was actually talking about Christ's suffering, that he descended to the depth of the earth and there was, the, the depth of his suffering was expressed on the cross. There was a, a, another theologian called Paul Bain who was a, 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 a Puritan and he said that that verse refers to Christ being buried. He's buried and it refers to his burial. Uh, others have said that that applies to, that phrase applies to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And uh, Michael Eaton has another view, which I think is very simple and quite profound. He simply says this, that it means that Jesus descended into the realm of the dead. And what he means by that is Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks of three things. He talks about heaven, earth, and the depths of the earth, all right? And when Jesus overcame death, he descended to the depths of hell, and he took the keys of death, and he ascended again to glory. Amen? So there's no place that does not know the rule of Jesus. Do you know that? Not even hell. Jesus has descended and has taken the keys of hell and death and he's liberated us forever. That's the gospel. And yes, one day Satan will be completely defended, uh, defeated. But now we live in this interim, interim, interim state. But this, Jesus rules over all. There's no place in the universe he does not rule. And that's why Paul says God fills all things in every way. He fills all things. The, the vastness of the cosmos is filled by God. Everything in the, has life and meaning and finds its life and meaning in, in God. All right. So I am excited. And that's my third point and then I'm finishing, all right? So he t- Paul talks about that. And he says, okay, Christian unity. talks about the diversity of the church and enjoying the diversity of the church. He says, we're all a gift. And now... He makes it specific. He just mentions five gifts. And we're going to look at some other gifts in the next couple of weeks. But these are all preaching gifts. And when I saw that, something in my mind just went, yes! Because people always fight about who's an apostle, and who's a prophet, and who's an evangelist. They are simply preaching gifts. They are preaching gifts. They're not gurus. They are preaching gifts for the church to be built up. That's what Paul says. He's not talking here. He says the first gift that God gives, he gave apostles. And he says, it can't possibly mean that Paul's talking about the 12 apostles because this is after Jesus has uh, ascended to heaven. And so the the technical word is post-ascensional apostles. These are the apostles that Paul is talking about after the ascension of Christ. And so he's saying that there are other people that are used just as the apostles founded the church, the first 12 founded the church. There are people still today that plant churches and preach the word of God and expand the kingdom by preaching the word of God where no one else has preached it before. Those are apostles. Simple. That's what Paul says. They're called apostles. They don't write doctrine like Paul did. They don't invent new doctrines. They don't write the New Testament anymore. No. But they preach the gospel and they try to reach unreached people group. Apostles, that's what they do. It's a preaching gift. A person has a gift to lay foundations and to preach the whole counsel of God and see the church established. That's an apostolic preaching gift. All right? And then he says, oh, I just wanted to say this. This, this verse has become so real to me in the last couple of months. The heart of an apostle is simply this. From Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29. To them... This he chose to make known how great among the Gentiles 
are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says, Him we proclaim, we proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this our toil, struggling with all of the energy, his energy, that he powerfully works in me. That is the heart of the apostolic ministry. That is what apostles do. Their only concern, their prime concern, is to see Christ formed in every single person. That's what they give their lives for. To see Jesus mature in every single believer. And we're going to look at that now. And then Paul goes on. He says, not only did Jesus give the gift the preaching gift of the apostle. He also gives the preaching gift of the prophet. And Paul is not talking about prophets here. There are other areas of the Bible where he talks about prophecy in a different way. But he's not talking about prophecy here like some obscure person sitting in their home at back in wherever, typing words onto the internet and declaring them to be prophecy. He's not talking about that. He's saying here, the prophetic gift is someone who stands alongside, alongside the church planter, alongside the foundation layer, and he is also a preacher. And his preaching is just a little bit different. What his preaching does, he takes the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God, and he is able by spiritual perception to say, this is what God is saying right now. And he brings a word that cuts open something for the future of the church. That is what he's saying. Apostles lay the foundations, and prophets also have preaching gifts, and they come and they speak a word in season, and it breaks open the future of the church. That's what he's saying. There are other places where prophecy is spoken of differently, and we'll look at that. But here, that is what Paul is saying. And they are not the same. You know, prophecy in, in, in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law, the prophets were actually were quite high-end kind of ministries in that sense. They had the highest authority to be spokesmen for God. The downside of the prophet in the Old Testament is that you were, if you were declared to be a false prophet, you were killed. Aren't you glad we live under grace? How many of those internet prophets have any, 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 any responsibility for what they say? Who holds them accountable? They can say whatever they like, whether it comes true or doesn't come true, is irrelevant. It's not the, it's not the prophecy of the Bible. Acts chapter 2, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, says that we can all prophesy. And quotes Joel chapter 2. And I, I, I'm so grateful for that. We can all prophesy. This, this church has been encouraged many, many times by the prophetic word coming. I believe in prophecy. I want to say this, though. Prophecy that we experience now is not on the same level as the, those Old Testament prophets. It's not on the same level as what the first prophets who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. We don't prophesy on that same, that same kind of way. We all prophesy in part, having incomplete revelation. I want to say that largely a lot of prophecy that I've seen and heard in the New Testament church is not helpful, quite unhelpful, in fact. How many stories haven't we seen or read of, of people that have these ministries that are simply inspired by money or by other ambition, and it all comes out in the end? But I believe, still, having said all of that, that God still uses men and women to speak inspired words to the church, the words of God to the church. And the challenge for those that have the prophetic gift is this, not to overclaim things, not to make things more than what they actually are, and then to have the humility to not try and man manipulate the word into happening. Isn't that the challenge? You bring a prophetic word, comes to the elders, and the elders are called to weigh the word, and if nothing happens with the word, after a while, sometimes the prophets, the prophetic types say, well, what have you done with my word? What are you going to do with my word? <laughs> and so there can be like a little bit of manipulation there. Well, if you don't use my word, I'm going to be really upset. I'm making, trying to make light of it, but you understand what I am saying. There's this responsibility for those that are, have a prophetic gift to not overstate, and to be happy to just let it lie so that God can bring it into being when the time is right. And I have been doing this a while now, and I have seen that sometimes the prophetic word is five or ten years down the line, and then suddenly you understand it. And you think, what was that? Oh yeah, that word God spoke eight years ago. Look, it's, it's the word for today. Amen? So, 
these, these uh, preaching gifts work alongside each other. So prophets might not teach through exposition of the word like a teacher does, but they have a word for the church that is in season, and they bring it, and it breaks open the future. A teacher starts with a text. A prophet starts with the whole counsel of God, the whole message of the Bible, and he brings a challenging a, a word of clarity to the church. But sometimes these gifts overlap. A teacher can be prophetic. A prophet can can teach. Uh, some people are half and half. Some people are little prophet, little teacher. I don't care. I want to find out in heaven one day what I am. I just want to get on and preach the gospel and enjoy God. I don't care what I am. I don't, people, I don't really care what people think I, I am or what my gifting is. I just want to be used by God. And I hope one day I will discover what I was. <laughs> then, we make it so complicated, you know. It is so complicated and it actually is very, very simple. And then Paul says there's a third preaching gift. And the third preaching gift is the evangelist. And what does the evangelist do? He gives himself to the evangelistic message. He has a gift to help to get people to respond to the gospel. And that's what he gives himself to. He simply preaches the gospel and people are saved. That's the evangelist. And then he groups two together, pastors and teachers. And I want to say they are together. Now, sometimes people separate them out. But when you look at the Greek word, they are, inter, they are interrelated. They're closely related. I want to say it very simply. Pastors are simply good are, are, are preachers that are good with people. That's what a pastor is. He's a preacher who's good with people. And what is a teacher? A teacher is a pastor who is good with the Word. And sometimes people expect pastors to be everything. Good with the Word, good evangelistically, an apostle, a foundation layer, a prof- prophet. It's like exhausting. No, you are who you are. You is what you is. That's how it is. You can't be all things. The Word says you're not all things anyway. That's why we all need each other. And so whatever you are, just get on and enjoy it. All right? And why does Paul say this preaching, there are these five preaching gifts? He says there are these five preaching gifts for this simple reason, to equip, or there's other translations that use the word to perfect, to perfect the saints for the works of ministry, for building up of the body until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And it's so important. I, I, I really want to just try and stress this as well for a couple of minutes. It's most important that we don't see those three things as parallel statements. Because if they are parallel statements, then it means the only person who can minister is the preacher. And is that, is that what really it's saying? I don't think that it really is what it's saying. Because Paul, again, this is the English language and the limitations of the English language. Because I believe we are a kingdom of priests. I believe every one of you is a minister before God. So what is Paul saying? Paul must be saying that. And when we look closely, we can see that he is saying that. Because there's two Greek words. There's one English word, which is for. And it's used three times. There's two Greek words. The one is pros and the other is ace. And they mean different things. Pros is used the first time. For the perfecting of the saints, pros, for, pros. Into is the word ace, E-I-S, into the work of the ministry. And that, again, the word ace is used again, into the building of the body until we all reach maturity. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying this, not saying that preachers are the ones that do all three of those things. He's saying preachers are trainers. They are training the saints into ministry, so that the body can be built and everyone in the body can receive their gift and reach the fullness of the maturity in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Isn't that exciting? It means it's not up to the people, all the people behind the pulpit. The job of the people behind the pulpit is to try and equip the saints, perfect the saints by the preaching of the Word of God so that Christ is mature in people and people rise up into their own calling and gifting. And as that happens, the whole body, not just this local church, but the whole body of Christ starts to retain the fullness of Christ and become mature. Man, that is exciting. So I want to ask you this morning, what is your ministry? What is God calling you to do? What are the gifts that you have? What Paul is really saying is that there is a measure, there is the unity that we have. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's an amazing unity that we already enjoy. And he's saying there's a deeper and a fuller unity that comes as the word is preached and the fullness of Christ begins to dwell in us and a, a level of maturity in all of our lives begins to rise 
and then the whole church rises into the fullness of Christ, and there's a deeper and ever-growing level of maturity in the body of Christ. Man, I find that encouraging because that means that we're on a journey, and we are not perfect, but we are being perfected. The the fullness of Christ is coming. And Paul uses this image, he says, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God, the Son of God, to mature manhood. He uses that image of a body being coming to maturity, to the full measure of the stature of the fullness of God. So the goal of the five ministries of preaching are that people will achieve the full stature of manhood in Christ. First to the church. Thank you so much. And where else does Paul use that image of a body? He uses it in 1 Corinthians 12. Where he says, we are all part of the same body, and how can the eye say, I don't need you, and the, you know, all that stuff? Because we all need each other. So Paul is using this, this image again of the church being like a growing body. And my boy, he's not here, I don't want to embarrass him, but he's, he's now... He's uh, going through puberty, Matthew, and he is growing at a rate. Eh? Um, he's never going to be a giant, but I mean, he is suddenly, he's a foot taller than he was last year, and he's always tired, and he's like lying there, and I can see him growing. It's an amazing thing. He's gone from a size five shoe to a size nine shoe in a very short space of time. And you can see your, this child suddenly going like that. It's a bit like it's a bit like the Hulk. You remember, have you seen that movie? It's like suddenly, and it's just start growing and stretching and like, Kevin, teenager. <laughs> and Paul uses that image. He says, that's how it is with the church. The church is growing into maturity. Do you know what that means for me? It gives us a, it's, it's, it's an amazing picture of the future for the church, because we are always changing, always growing, always being enlarged, always being into a greater measure of maturity as the word is preached, that the full measure of Christ can come. It's a brilliant thing. It's an amazing thing. And so Paul uses that thing of a body growing. And that's, that's helped me to say, God, help me to be patient with your church, your beautiful bride. But sometimes you want it to be like that. But no, I've seen with, in the physical how long it takes, and this kind of like this child that you've loved for 11 or 12 years, suddenly the hormones kick in and like, and something starts to happen. It's like that with the church. There's a period of childlikeness. There's a period of immaturity. And Paul says, I don't want you to stay there. I want you to go through puberty so that you can achieve the full measure of the fullness of God. And going through puberty is not easy, is it? And then, oh, those changes, and how many of you can remember that? And starts, funny stuff starts to happen. You think, what is going on? You're not sure who you are. You're struggling to find out who you are and why you're on this earth. And should you do this? And should you do that? And for all us men who never grown up, you go, you go through it again when you're 40. Wives, prepare yourselves. And Paul says that the church has is still needing more maturity. And if we look at church history, the first century church, second century, it seems like the church was immature. And a radical thing happened in the 16th century where the Reformation came and there were some radical changes in the body of Christ and maturity became come to a fuller measure. But we are still not there. And ever since the beginning of the birth of the church, preachers are called to help to bring the church to maturity, to continually point people to Christ. That is our mandate as preachers. So that the church does not stay in that state. There's so many strange teachings in the world. So many. And they come every couple of years. And there's a favorite kind of teaching. And everyone runs off after the favorite teaching. And then a couple of years later, there's another favorite teaching that everyone's running off after again. Preachers are called to preach the counsel of God, are called to preach the gospel of Jesus. It is unchanging. Might go out of fashion for some people, but that's what preachers are called to do. So we can list endless testimonies of scheming, crafty preachers that have tried to make money out of ministry. And that's what Paul says here. He says, don't be carried by every wind of doctrine. Don't be carried by human cunning. Don't, that's a strong word. Don't be carried by craftiness. 
in deceitful schemes. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the preaching gift. We call to God the word of God. It's a serious thing. And so, essentially, Paul has a negative view of maturity. He's saying, describes it firstly as like being a childlike, don't always remain in a childlike state. Don't allow yourselves to grow up in God. And then secondly, he has, he has a positive view of maturity. He says, rather, don't remain like infants. Don't be tossed this way and that. Make up your mind. Understand. Know the gospel. Smell the gospel. So that when you hear a preacher and he's not preaching the gospel, you know it's not the gospel. That's how, that's how you must know the gospel. You must know it well. Like your wife. You know your wife. You wouldn't be confused if another woman walked into the room and like, is this my wife? No, you know your wife. In the same way, you know the gospel. You know the gospel. Paul encourages us always, always get, know the gospel so you can taste it. Where the false gospel is preached, you know it's not the gospel. And then this positive view of maturity, he says, rather, don't remain in that state. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way. Man, when I prepared this message, I was, I was battling. I'm 46. I still look at my life. There's so many places of immaturity in my life. Thank God, I'm not mature. How can I go and preach this? But this is the encouragement of God to you and to me. Grow up in every way. Into who? Into your own opinion of yourself and into your own ambition? No, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is, uh, with which it is equipped, then when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that together it builds itself up in love. So, can I be blunt and say maturity is not shown in childish instability? You just got to Face it straight in the face. We are always up and down. We can't make up our minds. We're always this way and that. Don't know which doctrine, this, that. The Bible says quite plainly, it says, we're still children. And I don't say this in a patronizing way. I'm saying it about myself. We have to grow up into Christ in every way. Speaking the truth in love. I want to say that maturity is being able to cope with rapid change. According to what God shows us, a mature Christian is someone who is so open to God that in every area of their lives, when God speaks, he grows up into Christ, or she grows up into Christ. As God says something, he or she obeys, and through obedience, they move into deeper and deeper fellowship with Jesus. That is Christian maturity. And so maturity is about unity. It's about holding together and loving unity while the whole body is joined together. And how is our body connected? Our body is connected with ligaments and sinews and muscles so that the life can flow, the blood can flow, the energy can flow, that there can be a connection. And I believe that's what Paul is saying about the five preaching gifts. He's saying the five preaching gifts are what supply life to the body, the body of Christ. Life comes to the body through the five preaching gifts. It energy, its energy flows through different kinds of preachers. And you know what? One kind of preaching is not better than the other kind of preaching. We need all that kind of preaching. We need, apostol- we need apostles, men who have planted churches and laid foundations. We need prophetic preachers. We need evangelists. We need pastor teachers. We need all of them so that the body can be built up into maturity and achieve the full measure of the fullness of Christ and be healthy and strong. And so, Paul says the result of that is that the, the entire church grows. The entire, entire church grows in quality and in quantity. You know, I, I, I long that, that churches in St. Albans would just grow rapidly. I'm sure you do. But you know what? We also need the people that are coming into the churches to be growing up rapidly. And we always want the numbers, don't we? Like, no, let's see many, many people saved. But what's the point of many people remaining babies when the world actually needs men and needs women in Christ that will stand for something? and declare his word, and not be content just to be, remain toddlers all their lives. So, 
Ultimately, Paul says the greatest growth is that of holiness, and the greatest part of that is love. So can I invite you also this year onto a journey? We have been on a journey for a while now, but can I invite you as a congregation to continue on this journey? And like I said, for me, this, this week has been greatly challenging personally in terms of preparing this message and applying this message to my own life where I see so much immaturity still in myself. But I, I feel like as God, as we allow the gospel to challenge us, wherever we are in our lives, even though in some areas of my life I feel like I'm still a child, grace comes to us. When we say, yes, Lord, I need you, grace comes. When we stand and we are at, we just like defiant, grace doesn't come. And what is the, the word says that God opposes those that are proud and defiant. But those that are humble, he gives grace and he lifts them up. So on this journey, let's be those that humble ourselves so that God can lift us up. We don't know everything about everything. I want to encourage you on this journey this morning. I want to encourage you to take another step in your journey this year. Not to be content where you might feel you are. Not to beat yourself up either, but actually that God is taking all of us on a journey. All of us are part of this history where the church is becoming, his bride worldwide, is becoming more and more mature. And it's receiving the full measure of Christ. Let's press on. Let's, let's, let's allow his word to challenge us. Let's allow his Holy Spirit to minister to us that we become a, a, a part of a mature bride that stands firm in a world where it's shifting and shaping and changing all the time. I want to encourage you, those of you that have joined this church in the last couple of years, to take that baton from those that have pioneered and to run with all of your heart. Run for as long as God has you here. We want to encourage you to run that the church can be built, that God can do what he wants to do. Amen.